Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. This episode, we'll be covering the storylines that take place away from the town, going scene by scene through faraway places, South Dakota, Mr. C's journey, and Las Vegas. So the FBI is now a presence tying in South Dakota, and Cooper, or Dougie, as he's known, is a presence tying together Las Vegas. New York again. So we don't actually go to that location in this episode, but we do see photos of Sam and Tracy, and they have the most ridiculous head injuries in this. It basically looks like they took a photo of the actors and then just sort of erased the tops of their heads and added some, like, gore. But their eyes aren't, like, hollowed out and oozing out or something. It's just, like, half of an eye, totally normal, and then cut off at the top, or, like, a mouth with, like, blood slashed across. I haven't taken that close of a look, but just from watching it again, it's the goofiest Photoshop job, which just fits in with Lynch's effects aesthetic throughout this series, except when he really wants to go for broke. That was kind of funny to look at. It looks like he just lopped off the head, and there's no, like, sense of the edges of the flesh or the areas that were cut off being somehow distressed or torn open. It's just like they stop, and then it's like blood or whatever. That was kind of amusing to see. They talk about how the NYPD found them. They, they don't know who owns the building. The guards disappear. So that's it for New York. The next story section to discuss is the FBI in South Dakota. We actually start with them before they reach South Dakota in Philadelphia. They're dealing with, quote-unquote, the congressman's dilemma, which has something to do with these different pieces of evidence that involve uh, photos of women in bikinis, a little kid in a sailor suit, a gun, and a jar of beans, which is just classic uh, Lynch assembly there. Tammy also reveals the New York info in this scene. So this is just the only point of this sequence is to reintroduce us to the FBI in a fun way. And then the real story begins with them, which involves South Dakota. At this point, just Yankton. Yankton Federal Prison, that is. They get a call about Cooper, that he's in South Dakota. They all plan to go. Gordon has a meeting with Denise, who's now the uh, chief of staff of the FBI, or the Federal Bureau of Investigation, as she says. And she warns him about Tammy, not to, you know, that he should behave himself, kind of. And uh, later they arrive at the airport. Gordon is disappointed that they're not going to see Mount Rushmore, and Albert hands him a picture, a photo of Mount Rushmore. They speak to Cooper, who speaks in this very low, rumbling, pitch-down voice, and very awkward. They can tell something's wrong with him. Gordon tells the warden that he wants to hear about the quote-unquote private phone call that Cooper's going to be given. And then... Gordon and Albert speak outside afterwards. They send Tammy away and they speak privately and Albert reveals that he's had contact with uh, Cooper and Jeffries once over the past 20 years or so and it went horribly wrong. A, a, a man, an agent, an asset they had in Columbia was killed seemingly as a result of this. Gordon's alarmed by that. Uh, Albert says it's a Blue Rose case and they want to bring somebody else in to have a look at Cooper and they don't say who it is. Albert says, I know where she drinks. And so people were guessing all week after this episode aired, who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? There's one moment where Gordon winces and kind of waves his hand when Denise is talking about her screaming hormones. And people took that as sort of a transphobic gesture of like, okay, even though he's cool with her being transgender, he's really uncomfortable with the details of it. And he's just this old man who's kind of stuck in his way or something. And that might be what they were going for. But it occurred to me this time, it might also just be a really corny uh, hearing aid joke because uh, she talks about screaming. So the emphasis might be on screaming rather than hormones. And he winces because he feels like he can hear them. That may be an overgenerous interpretation, but it did occur to me this time. And uh, meanwhile, in Buckhorn, South Dakota, the only scene that we get is uh, the vial of the corpse they found in Ruth Davenport's apartment. 
is uh, blocked by U.S. government when they try to identify the prince. Another story section that obviously intersects with the FBI in South Dakota is Mr. C. We see him crash his car in South Dakota. He's getting dizzy as a cigarette lighter glows, which suggested to me at least that this was the intended output of the electrical outlet that Cooper was entering into inside the purple room. That just makes total sense to me that, that he would, you know, Mr. C was trying to get away from any electrical outlet, but he either forgot or couldn't deal with the fact that there was one in the car in the form of the cigarette lighter, and that therefore that's that's something that uh, Cooper could come out of and trade places with him. So he covers his mouth, which I also took as being like not just trying to keep himself from throwing up, but also trying to keep Cooper from coming in. And he vomits the Garmin Bosia once after he's seen Dougie appear before him and he kind of knows he's safe and the police get sick when they come to find his body uh, when when the fbi gets to yankton they see a dog leg cocaine and a machine gun in cooper's trunk and mr c's trunk and that's uh, probably because he just planted some bizarre dangerous looking objects there himself so that he would get arrested because he obviously wants to get inside the prison so that he can uh, get ray out this is all part of his plan. He speaks to Gordon. He tells him he's been working with Jeffries. He stares very coldly at Albert and gives an eerie thumbs up and a grin that's just kind of low-key hilarious and terrifying at the same time. I love what Lynch does with his pitch-down voice. And just this whole scene, the way he interacts with these characters, and he kind of stares down at Albert as he's talking in this very cold, shark-like manner. It underscores the weight and the seriousness of all of this, this whole side of the plot. It also shows his, the character's kind of coded ways of threatening or dealing with men versus women. With Albert, it's more like a confrontation of, you know, I, kn I know what you did for me once that ended up you know, resulting in someone's death, that seems to kind of be what he's going for. Just a challenge. It's like a challenge almost to look at him. Whereas there's something more coldly sadistic, but still sadistic in the way he handles Daria. Tammy kind of gets off because she's just the newbie. So she's off to the side and as, as Cooper has this conversation basically with Gordon and also makes eye contact with Albert. That's just something to consider going forward, I think. It's, it's interesting to consider how in this world that's dominated by men in the FBI world, how the women fit into that. And of course, you see that a little later in a lighter way when Gordon tells Tammy to leave because she's got a wire and he doesn't want the conversation recorded, but mostly just because she's new. She's not She's young. She's not part of their world. And as she walks away, him and Albert kind of ogle her and make a joke. They play that for laughs, but they also play it more seriously, I think. In the Las Vegas story section, that really gets going. And I didn't time it, but I guess it probably has more screen time than any other storyline in this episode. In Las Vegas, we meet Dougie Jones. We meet the original Dougie Jones with his shaggy haircut and sideburns and kind of paunchy demeanor and look and he just finished with uh jade a prostitute that he was with there and while she showers he falls down he crawls across the floor and he's zapped into the air and materializes briefly in front of mr c and then is sent to the bread room and we'll handle that when we get to the spirit world stuff but cooper materializes in this room he seems kind of lost but content like he's not distressed or upset he's just kind of there and at this time it just seems like maybe a temporary phase he gets taken by jade in the car she has to take care of him uh, he finds a great northern key because he sees a, a street sign that references sycamores so he pulls that out of his pocket and looks at it and uh, then he's dropped off at the casino he gets coins he wins at all these slot machines because he sees a little symbol of the red room floating above them and then he's taken back to his home after the manager kind of passive aggressively 
threatens him basically for winning all this money from the casino the tens of thousands of dollars is the limo taken back and uh he knows where he lives because he ran into a couple friends at the shaker couple at the uh at the casino and they just dougie you know where you live it's lancelot court and they they read the whole thing and uh cooper ends up back at this this house with a red door janie e his wife dougie's wife who's now by you know default his wife she comes out she yells at him drags him inside and then she opens a bag of money and she realizes the debt that they're in and everything she's been worrying about is now resolved by him hitting the jackpot at the casino and of course all these characters interact with dougie they know something's off but they also kind of interact with him like he's normal the next morning he gets his clothes on they're ill-fitting because he's so much skinnier than the the Dougie character who looked just like him but wasn't him or so it seems. He gets a vision of Mike telling him that uh, you know well we'll talk about that in the as we come up to the lodge lore section but basically telling him what happened. Janie helps him pee. He stares at a mirror. Seems like a reference to the finale episode kind of touching his reflection. He meets Sonny Jim who is ostensibly his son and then he goes down to breakfast wearing a tie around his head because he doesn't know how to put a tie on. He eats the pancakes and uh, drinks his first cup of coffee and grins and spits it out we've been introduced to the dougie cooper domestic sphere in this section i think jade's social role will be changed by cooper's presence she's a sex worker she's there with her client they're done she's going to get her money and go home and now she's sort of forced into this role of taking care of this guy and kind of rolling her eyes but you also see that she actually is somewhat concerned for him thinks maybe he had a stroke gives him money something interesting to note in the casino sequence is that the the old woman who's I think described as Lady Slots addict? The first jackpot that she wins is from a slot machine that's titled Giant Jackpot, which certainly makes you think of the giant. I don't I think I've heard that referenced on a podcast before, so I don't think that's a new observation. But I noticed that this time and laughed throughout the sequence, and certainly in Vegas as a whole. But it's particularly noticeable when he's at the casino winning all this money. Dougie Cooper is in tune with an energy that envelops this whole, this tacky environment as it would anywhere. So he's in like the most banal, chintzy, tacky place, but he's still able to kind of coast on this connection that he has with a, with a larger energy that seems to be guiding him to the right places. And we see that in the form of the red room icon that appears above the machines that are going to pay off and this just to me totally vindicates martha nockhamson's reading of the red room as this place of positive energy and an opportunity where you kind of follow something rather than force your will upon it and i think you're really seeing the red room used that way in in this sequence there's really a self-help quality to Dougie's good fortune. It, it feels like the kind of sermon you would get about believe in yourself and you follow what's that book that came out, The Secret. The whole power of positive thinking quality. And that's something that a lot of people are rightly kind of skeptical of and critical of, but I think the parodic aspect of, of how this story is told, I think, makes it something that even people who really disagree with this kind of self-help ideology can go along with and laugh with and enjoy. But I do think it's kind of sincere as well. It, it really does connect with the TM organization in a lot of ways, Transcendental Meditation, where it's not just a technique, it's an actual organization that Lynch is heavily involved with. And actually, even the kind of chintzy quality of the casino goes along with that. If you look at documentaries and stuff about the TM group, and you look at some of the higher-ups and kind of how they dress in these like gold robes and stuff, it's kind of goofy. And it feels like something you would see at like a casino, you know, a Shriner convention or something in Las Vegas. Even that aspect of it clicks in a way. And I think Dougie, Cooper Dougie, 
his role in a lot of this is to stare banality in the face without blinking. You see that literally in Burns's case, the Burns, the casino manager, where they just stare into each other's eyes and Dougie is just done sort of unyielding. He just looks back and is like, yeah, I'm here, you're there, you know, nothing to comment on. As I mentioned, I think the Vegas stuff, it's it's somewhat dry. Even though it's colorful, it's not drab at all, but it, it feels sterile at times. You know, it feels like Vegas, basically. And uh, I think you get a little of a relief from that in the morning sequences. There's a more of a warmer, cozy glow in the Jones household, even though it's also very cookie cutter in a way. But there's more of a lived in, feel good kind of quality to it. It feels like Lynch doing Spielberg in a way. Like this is a very mid 80s to mid 90s look at suburban all-American life. It feels like Toy Story even a little bit, you know, that cozy home where you can have adventures in and all that type of stuff. Obviously, this coincides with my own childhood as well. You know, I was born in 83, so from like mid-80s to mid-90s, I'm like 2 to 12. So maybe that's me imposing, seeing a domestic scene, imposing like my understanding of that culturally. But it does feel at times like it's, it is going for that specific kind of era and vibe in a way, a way I can't totally put my finger on. I'd but I'm going to keep my eye out on that as we as we cover the series going forward. The sunniness of the home, it feels like something you'd see in a kid's movie from that time, where the kid has like his own hidden secret world that he lives in, except in this case it's the father, not the son, who <laughs> has who, who is sort of in touch with this these supernatural forces and seeing them within the home and everything like that. You know, Mike, Mike is his E.T., I guess. I don't know where he's kind of the E.T., really. And that's another reason it feels like Spielberg, because... Dougie is like this oh, this character who's wandered in, can't really communicate with everyone, and everyone is kind of curious about him and takes care of him in this environment and shepherds him around his own home and everything like that. So he feels like the E.T. character entering into this. I also love how Lynch just is able to photograph objects in a way that makes them feel like they're characters themselves. Like just the green jacket lying on the bed as Dougie Cooper looks at it. it makes me laugh out loud. And it just, you feel like it has its own energy right away. I also love the way Janie just talks at Dougie constantly, explaining things to him in such a transparent way. He's basically a sounding board for exposition. You know, I think in a lot of ways, Dougie is like the perfect plot construct where he's there to do all these things the story needs to do, but he does it in this transparent way where you just know exactly what he's being used for. And it's like put into the foreground in a way. There's a moment where Sonny Jim kind of greets Cooper in the doorway and Cooper touches his stomach and Sonny Jim points at him with like a cocked gun gesture. And we've already seen that once. Uh, Red did it with Shelley in the roadhouse, but somebody pointed out it's a great reference in a way to the season one finale where Cooper is standing in the doorway in front of an open door. Someone approaches and shoots him in the stomach, right where he kind of touches his stomach in this. And I love the fact that this scene, which plays so differently in so many ways, formally, narratively, the look of it, everything from that moment at the end of uh, season one, and yet they're connected by this thread across 25 years and three seasons and all these convolutions in the story. Uh, it's another example of how Twin Peaks can contain so much, and I love it for that as well. In the assassination plot side of this story, we meet the hitmen who are looking for Dougie, and uh, he's, you know, they try to kill him, but obviously he's ducked down so they, they don't see him in the car. And one of them places a bomb on the car. We also meet the 119 woman, the woman who's literally screaming 119 as her son watches out the window and sees the bomb planted on the car. And we don't yet know yet who's hired these people. We can probably guess it's Mr. C trying to, 
you know, that he set up this whole situation where Cooper would be transported into this house and then he could kill him and be rid of him. As far as the 119 family goes, a lot of people have interesting speculations about them and all these theories and stuff. The one thing I noticed is that the mother has examples of like almost like a display of every legal vice on her table. And that's the key thing to understand. It's all legal. It's pills, alcohol, cigarettes, and cards. I find that fascinating. There is sort of a powdery, milky substance on there. We don't quite know what that is if she's, uh, you know, if, if there's some illegal drug there too. But I just find it really interesting that all of the things that she's taking or using that are seeming seemingly trapping her in this terrible existence are all socially sanctioned uh, forms of escape or entertainment or distraction. That's interesting. Make of that what you will. We do meet the nervous manager of the casino and uh, we get the sense that he says, I'm dead. And then he talks about, we're always watching you. There's a surveillance camera. And there's a sense of whoever runs the show here being larger than life and vaguely threatening as well. We also meet the limo driver who's kind of uncomfortably waiting with Cooper uh, on the lawn of his home. So one of the uh, storylines from the original cycle that is returning in this episode or these episodes is uh, Denise and specifically her transition uh, from 1989. I was going to say 90, but you know, it takes place in 1989. And at this point now it's, I think this in the original series, they didn't quite make it clear if she was uh, transgender. I mean, most people interpreted it that way, but um, the, you know, it was sort of a different time and how they wrote about that subject and it becomes more explicit, I think, in this episode. So this is 15 entries after the last appearance of Denise um, coming back into the story in that way. At this point, we can say that the Cooper Annie in the Lodge storyline in which Cooper is uh, stuck in the Lodge and the doppelganger emerges out into the world. This has now found a place within the Las Vegas storyline, within the Las Vegas location, this character of Dougie that Cooper replaces and kind of fills his shoes. This emerges directly from what happened at the end of season two. And of course, that traces its way all the way back to when Cooper's history is first pronounced in episode four, way back season one, where he says there was a woman I loved and so forth. And the Wyndham Earl storyline comes into that. The Annie story comes into that. The Lodge mythology comes into that. And they all combine at the end of season two. And now they're kind of diverging again into different story streams and this is one of them that's it for this episode please rate review and subscribe on apple podcasts you can also support this podcast on patreon.com slash lost in the movies tomorrow we will be covering the scenes that take place in twin peaks so back into the town and i'll see you then 